from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cybersecurity personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers, as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavors, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types, or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. We're joined this week by some very special guests. Psychologist Beck McKeown specializes on improving how humans respond in pressurized situations. She is a visiting lecturer at Cranfield University and has also worked with the Ministry of Defense, helping armed forces um, build more agile human assets. And we're going to be talking a lot about that kind of stuff in the rest of the podcast. And Swati Singh, who has over 20 years of IT uh, industry experience working in uh, various multinational companies and is now head of business information security and resilience at uh, Close Brothers. Alongside our guests, who we're very excited to welcome, um, also we have podcast regular and Immersive Labs Chief Cyber Officer Max Vetter who maybe will offer some insight, you never know, it's a possibility. This week we are going to focus on the human challenges that are inherent in dealing with cyber crises. How do organisations prepare and how are human capabilities factored in? But before we dive into all of that, um, it'll be good to get a little bit of background on uh, both of our guests. So um, Swati, let's start with you. Um, you, You've got a significant amount of experience in IT and at the moment you're heading up an information security function but how did you get into cyber security um tell us a little bit about your role at the moment sure chris thank you for the invite i'm really pleased to be on this podcast uh, so a little bit about myself is that i started working in india in delhi in a small organization and uh, my journey started as a test manager and then i made my way to project management and program management because uh, i thought uh, by the time things are uh, discovered in testing, it's too late to make a difference. And I wanted to uh, improve the quality upstream. And that led to me going into project management, program management. And then while working in Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, which is uh, just before Close Brothers, uh, I got a chance to work on identity and access transformation program. I was a, um, a portfolio manager over there. And um, that just, just uh, that sat within uh, group information security function and that's how my journey in information security kind of started um definitely came across very sort of dynamic people in information mm. security while working in bank of america and uh, ran few uh, events such as women in information security or women in technology and financial services so that kind of gave me an insight to what how important information security as well as data Privacy has been, GDPR was coming, uh, sort of knocking on our doorsteps at the time, knocking on our doors. So uh, that's how I ended up being in information security and really, really enjoy it because it kind of gave a different dimension to technology. It's almost like a purpose that you have to secure the data for the customers, for the end users, for what the implications are for uh, of a security breach and data breach. And it is very easy to draw parallels from your personal life and what you go to work and protect. So that's why I am in kind of information security and now working for Close Brothers Limited as head of uh, business information security. 
a bit about Close Brothers Limited. Uh, we call ourselves a modern merchant bank and uh, our businesses provide financial support and advice to small businesses and individuals in the UK through a range of financial services, lending, savings, wealth management, securities, customer finance. Can you talk a bit about the addition of resilience to your to your job title? And is that a fairly I, I would expect it's a fairly recent thing. It's very de rigueur at the moment, um, which is why I was which is why I was going to ask. So what is it that the addition of the word resilience to your job title really means to you? The way I describe resilience is uh, we bend we flex, but we don't break. So we are living in times where uh, we know it is going to happen some some the bad actors the malicious actors are uh, very active very organized mm-hmm. and resilience is not only about managing an incident it is much wider than that it is about your ability to bounce back not only from that incident but restoring your business services and your applications and your processes in a way that the impact to customer not just the impact to firm but the impact to customers and the wider market is absolute minimum and this ties in with the new regulation that were due to come out and be implemented in march 2021 but there may be a little bit of delay owing to pandemic so resiliency really truly is now going to be related to impact tolerance you won't just be measuring the recovery point objectives or recovery time objectives but you'll be measuring impact tolerance to the wider financial market i've not not heard it in in that context before but that does add a that adds a layer of jeopardy <laughs> to the requirement for resilience inside a inside an organization but it's an interesting it's an interesting take to have um beck over to you um tell us a little about uh, uh your your background your your work so far and uh, maybe some of the things that you're focusing on uh, right now in terms of your your area of expertise i've always had an interest in people and i think psychology uh, but it took a bit of a midlife crisis career change for it to actually become something real so at the grand old age of 35 i uh, i went to university um, I did an applied psychology degree at Cranfield University, and I had all sorts of intentions of going off and doing lots of exciting things. Um, but I kind of liked it there, so I stayed for 15 years. Um, early parts of my career were very much in the aviation and rail industry, so um, still high stakes, high risk type stuff that we were looking at. Um, then I started to do some work on a Ministry of Defence contract, and then the last sort of five years moved into a group that sort of more was more around cyber. So everything that I've done really is all about how the brain works, how people learn, how they develop expertise or not, how they make mistakes, um, what drives them to think, behave, and communicate in the way that they do. Um, and most recently, my sort of area of expertise in research has been looking at what we call cognitive readiness, uh, so it's cognitive agility as part of that. Um, and it's really about the development of the key skills and attributes needed to create that agile workforce um, and to be flexible and open. And I kind of liked what uh, Swati said about resilience, actually. It's about being able to bend to flex and not break, but from a psychological perspective, um, with that sort of openness and flexibility, all of those things undermine our situational awareness, our problem solving, our decision making. So it's it's about becoming um, more stable and then being able to make better decisions. Max, it's a good op- opportunity for you to comment here. I think you've obviously you know worked in the past as a 
um, as a trainer, um, you know, offering um, courses to people either wanting to move into cybersecurity already, already in those in those roles. Um, do you can, you can you describe some of the maybe some of the common attributes of those uh, of those individuals in the context of the idea of, of incident response? So do we actually think that we we've talked in the past about how um, you know the nature of uh, individuals who work in cybersecurity is this slightly hackery men- mentality does can that align effectively with what um both swati and beck are talking about in that ability to effectively respond yeah i think that's exactly what i was thinking when rebecca was talking about uh resilience and uh, kind of perseverance as well which we found when teaching uh, young people going into um a gghq which was what what the the summer school that we were running was for um we found it wasn't about oh they know this tool or they know this this technique. It was actually do they keep trying and they don't break. They don't, they just they bend and 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 so the ones who would do the best at, at when we were teaching them would be the and it didn't matter actually which background they, they were from whether it was from computer science or humanities or anything uh, that the ones that had that perseverance that um, and you know resilience. Um, were the the ones exactly that uh, went through in the end or, or did the best in the, in the course and that, yeah it is it's amazing how you see that out of university or even before university that that kind of mindset and how how well that then um, translates into later in in life and in whatever they do but yeah definitely instant responses is a good place for them to go if they have those attributes i'm sure that there are changing perceptions at you know right at the top of organizations in the context of uh, incident response or incident management and and maybe um, swati i'll get you to talk a bit about the differences between those two things in a moment but if we think about the the nature of an an, an organization from the top down um swati what do you think is the is the board level view of what incident response exists for and what it does and do you think that there are things that we need to 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 change or influence to try to make that view different in any way if you do think it needs to be changed in my experience what i've seen is that uh, the board is very much now information security resilience uh, 10 years ago perhaps uh, they were part of it for example or uh, this uh, CISO may not have a seat on the board or may not have a direct line to board members. But uh, in my experience, that has changed quite quite significantly. And I think uh, partly the reason is the stories of data breaches in the media. They have, uh, in a way, done a little bit of a favor to, to the security practitioners. Uh, now the question is more about in the board, okay, we gave you this much money, where is the value? So we CISOs and security practitioners have to constantly demonstrate the value for the uh, for the uh, money and the time and the effort that is being spent on them. As a security practitioner or as a CISO, we kind of say that prevention is ideal, but detection is a must. However, detection without response has very little value. Mm. So that's, that's the message that has uh, generally, uh, that is understood by the board 
at the ground level, though, the people who may be involved with managing the incident uh, or responding to the incident, their focus is a lot more on tools and technology. So I think the challenge at the moment is uh, joining the two up. What we agree with the board, how we have uh, convinced the board what it means versus if it really happens, how do you tie the two and utilize your tools, technology and people to get out of it as soon as possible. And what are some of the ways that that you've seen um, to to do that um, preparation? What are the things that an organization will need to have in place um, in order to be confident in their in their capability when it comes to responding to an incident my opinion i mean planning is of utmost importance if a if we are not planning as to how uh, this is where the tabletop exercises, crisis management exercises, they are hugely important. So uh, I, I kinda, uh, I'm going to sort of say, uh, uh, I hope I don't mess it up. Abraham Lincoln at, uh, said that, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. So <laughs> that's what is very true to kind of incident uh, management. Uh, the planning piece is extremely important. The other pieces that are very, very important, which you realize when you are part of incident are uh, decision making when you don't have all the facts and when to communicate and how much. So planning tabletop exercises and crisis management exercises, which are which should be true to your business. So you could get a lot of information these days online uh, about crisis management exercises, tabletop exercises, but how to tailor them and make it uh, specific to the kind of challenges your business will face, the threat landscape your business has, has that's where the kind of magic lies. Mm. But Beck, it'd be interesting to get your input there on um, on something that Swati said, which was decision making when you don't have all the facts. How like how, how does somebody's what's the human element in that? What, what what's what's different about making a decision? You know, here sat at my desk, you know, enjoying my Friday afternoon versus making that decision under maybe extreme pressure, but certainly some pressure. How what changes about a person's attitude during that time um, well really as you say it's, you're sitting here at a desk you've got lots of information to at hand if there's gaps in that information you can go and find it you can ask people so there's that sort of common everyday garden decision making um, the decision making that we're talking about here is what's called naturalized decision making so it is very much on the fly um, and a lot of it resorts to sort of going back to um, its automatic responses, things that we know really, really well. So it's almost become unconscious, intuitive. Um, and there is a thing called recognition primed decision making. Uh, chap called Gary Klein came up with this after he'd done a huge amount of research into naturalised decision making. And what he's saying is, is there are cues. And when you have those cues, that sets off certain patterns of thinking from your, your experience you know, in your brain. Um, in the military, we'd call it left of bang. So it's, it's what happens before it all kicks off. There'll be certain things that then cue you into, actually, this is how I need to respond. So that's how the brain actually works in that sort of situation. So there is, a, that there is the potential that the, the tabletop exercise that does a good job of exercising the plan is not quite the same as the variables that might be involved in the event that it doesn't go to plan, as it were. 
Yes. Um, another military saying is that uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. A lot of organisations keen to run tabletops because they recognise that they are good ways of um, stress testing, particularly uh, decision making. I suppose what you're saying is it's actually much harder to then test some of the tactical requirements during an incident um, because that's obviously harder to do. It's harder to set up. It's harder to create a realistic environment to do that in. So what are some ways um, that organisations could look to address that, that, that challenge of making sort of a realistic exercise for an organisation that really measures their, you know, their possible preparedness? In Close Brothers, we, and this is not Close Brothers specific, actually many organizations do, do this. This model is a, a standard model. We kind of call it bronze, silver, and gold model. Um, it, I'm sure a lot of you here would have heard about it. So, you know, the bronze, uh, the teams, the roles, when we think of incident response, we often think of the security team or the IT team who will receive some sort of incident uh, or they'll observe some sort of anomalies and they'll get on to protect the network or to resolve that problem. And there is a there is a different difference between incident management and problem management. Problem is actually the root cause. Incident is are can be a set of symptoms that you see. So uh, so in a crisis kind of situation. Uh, uh, bronze team is um, made up of people who are kind of almost frontline on security, on IT, on business, and they are working hopefully from business continuity plans, disaster recovery plans, which should be very much part of the businesses fabric businesses process already they should be the ongoing discussions that security id and business teams are uh, working on so in the in the uh, in a crisis situation we shouldn't be defining them they should be ready to be used and that's what that bronze team sort of will be operationally responding but on top of bronze is the silver team the head of business units, uh, head of, you know, the exercise uh, control group, the leader, the decision maker or, or, or navigator, moderator, so to say, they are uh, the link between the bronze and the gold and they are constantly feeding facts both ways so that tactical decisions can be taken. And on top is, of course, the, the leadership team, the board members in a crisis situation, which are the gold ones. And they they may have to take a lot of tactical decisions on the spot with limited um, uh, facts, but they will still be aware of they are the closest to the strategy also. And a lot of things that silver or uh, bronze team may not know will still be driven from their gold team, keeping in mind the strategy. So that's the kind of a, a model, so to say. If incident response plan is the map, then the tabletop exercises or the crisis management tabletop exercises represent the terrain. So map is not the terrain. You may have lots of plans, some of them, as I mentioned, disaster recovery and business continuity. Until you play them out, uh, you don't get the feel of what it will mean. So uh, going back to in a very coarse uh, grain manner, in a very crude manner, because that's not my subject area, my skill set, going back to Rebecca's point, uh, uh, you almost want to uh, embed the flow, the process, the steps, how we are going to use which tool and technology 
in their memory. Uh, that should be etched in people's memory from gold team, silver team, and bronze team. But the decision making remains uh, on the spot decision, and that's that. That's something that you cannot practice because it depends on the context and the crisis. That was going to be my question, actually, to either to <laughs> Swati or Rebecca was. Uh, tabletops, we all agree, is a, a great idea and something uh, to be practiced and everything else. But what do you see? And I, I, I don't know, maybe Rebecca, Rebecca is the best person to answer this, but what do you see the difference between actual, when a crisis happens, you, 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 you will have planned it as many times as you want. Some people don't, but we're assuming now we have done the, the crisis management and we've done all the, the tabletopping. Uh, how do decision make? How do, does decision making change when actually something hits the fan? I think for me, the biggest thing is that when something hits the fan, uh, the brain chemicals get involved. And that is going to guide the way that you think, whether you like it or not, you have no control over this. It's a tiny little part of the brain called the amygdala. And when that perceives a threat coming in, it sends signals through the central nervous system, down to your adrenal gland, and then oof, adrenaline kicks in. When adrenaline kicks in, thought and reason goes out of the window. Um, we, we call it cognitive narrowing um, because your focus then really closes down and becomes on, you know, completely on whatever the threat is. So there's a danger there that actually you're going to miss a whole load of stuff because, you, you, you know, you tend to go tunnel focus on, on one sort of thing. Um, the other thing is, is that um, it's what we call an amygdala hijack. So it's a very basic gut level response. You, you don't think about it. You just actually do it. Um, think about road rage. Somebody cuts you up on a roundabout. What they've done isn't unreasonable, but for some reason it sets you off on one. So, of course, no, it's totally unreasonable, Beck. <laughs> Beck, it's completely unreasonable. Anybody who cuts anyone up on a roundabout. Come so on. Chris is very familiar with red mist and amygdala hijacks because it sounds like I don't know what you're talking. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> don't ever go to Milton Keynes. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ruin not not only ruin your amygdala but ruin your tires going there. So basically, what it means is that once adrenaline gets going, you you sort of in the flow. Uh, you know, there's a threat, so you're you react to that chemically. That naturally has a knock-on effect on the way that you see things. Um, so that's that sort of very much, as I said, tunnel vision in. There are lots of ways to sort of try and mitigate that. And this is kind of where this cognitive agility thing comes in um, about building skills where you actually challenge yourself. But that's going slightly off on one. When you go back to the tabletop exercise, what you've got is you, you've got process training. So we know that A, something happens, we go to the right folder on the shelf, we put it off and we work through that set of steps. Um, that's fine. And you kind of need that, I think, because it means that you don't then miss important things in the same way that the pilot has a checklist to go and look around the aeroplane and do all these flight deck checks before he starts driving the thing. Um, so that is really, really important. However, procedural memory, which is where the process bit comes in, and decision making are two of the skills that actually degrade really fast. Um, I used to work with somebody who did a whole load of research on skill fade, um, which has been doing for quite a number of years. And unless you are regularly exercising your procedural stuff and your decision making stuff, you lose it. Not obviously straight away, but the less you exercise it, the less proficient you are at it. And I think in her research, um, she came up with some figures and said that you need to be training once every 
eight weeks as a minimum to keep that at gold standard. In your experience in the in the military context, um, can you give us an idea of how frequently they're they are exercising? It feels like they do it a lot, but maybe you can give us a bit more insight. It's it's interesting, really, because they, yes, they do, and no, they don't. Is the simple answer to that? And I lied when I said simple. Um, <laughs> what they do is they tend to have. Um, a really big exercise um when i went she was held on the prairie in canada at the uh, place called they call it battus it's the british army training unit at suffield and that's probably three thousand people um you have two battle groups um and they fully train everybody right from the very top in the decision making to the guys who are out in the tanks and firing things and digging holes and all sorts of stuff um, they only happen very infrequently because it's a massive amount of people. You've got to get them all over into Canada and there's live firing involved. They're incredibly expensive. So to me, that is like the big tabletop exercise that they're doing it with the biggest toolbox ever in the middle of nowhere. Um, however, that's a one-off event. What they do is they have a take-home pack, which then they go home and you can work on that. I wonder how effective that is. It's good because you do need to exercise with all of the parts available to you. But because you're doing it so infrequently, do you actually necessarily, do the guys in the front line actually get an understanding of what their part they're playing? Because it's just so big. Um, a way around that is to do what the um, US and the Canadian armies do, which is what they call, um, they have a thing called hot washing. So they'll be going through this big exercise, but every time they do a scenario there's a break and the group who have been involved in the scenario I think what was supposed to happen what did happen what did we do right what did we do wrong have that discussion people within the group take ownership of that problem and they change it on the way through so by the time they get to the end of a four-week exercise that learning is almost embedded within that particular unit which is better than having it all at the end in a pack to take home and perhaps put it on a dusty shelf somewhere um so it for me it's all about frequency frequency builds experience experience builds patterns of thinking um it makes you efficient it makes you effective it's automatic so it makes you very quick and then we go and spoil things by saying that's a good thing and also a bad thing because you then have unconscious bias but you might want to talk about something else for a little while now <laughs> <laughs> but the, so I was going to pick up on one thing there and and even talking about you know uh, frequency or long or exercises over a longer period of time I suppose Swati the challenge that you have um, and the industry has is that you're still trying to secure organizations and do all the things that need doing day on day whilst at the same time trying to pair, prepare for the potential that there could be that there could be an incident so how is that balance struck between ensuring that you're prepared and all of the day-to-day things that an operational team for example needs to do to do in a smaller organization often not very well but in bigger organization the rules are typically better defined i mean this is one of the surveys uh, x matters is one of the enterprise incident management platforms many organizations use used in one of the surveys they did a lot of organizations where the number of employees is less than 5,000, they still don't have a dedicated incident management team. 
and if if they happen to have it it consists of just one person organizations don't expect a lot of uh, incidents to be happening on daily basis but the, the, the reality is the attempt is happening every day thousands of attempts on one unlucky day when a lot of uh, things kind of um, don't come together is when you face the incident so usually that logic is behind in a smaller organization that we don't need an incident management team fully dedicated incident management team um, but when you look at it when you are in a crisis situation in an incident uh, situation uh, it is not just down to the incident management team there is business decision capability the network management capability legal advice communication skills forensic skills physical security crisis management all those have to almost run as an orchestra really for for you to come out uh, of that crisis that incident effectively uh, without damaging uh, too much so partly it is down to defining those roles as part of incident management plan uh, defining those roles that are uh, core to incident response plus uh, dependent on the other roles within the organization so that's quite key to be able to be prepared let's go back to let's go back to thinking about cognitive bias then because it felt back like you were about to say that if you practice too much then you end up in a situation where you've got cognitive bias so how does that how does that work how does it play out the brain is a marvelous piece of kit it really is but it's also a limited capacity information processor um, so it's up to all sorts of things that we don't even know about what we pay attention to is what our brain decides that we're going to pay attention to. So there's another little problem. Um, most common biases, certainly military, and I think possibly from the research I've done in cyber as well, um, there are a number of them. So attribution bias is one. So that's whereby you would look at uh, maybe indicators of compromise. Uh, what's going on where you take all of those tiny pieces of information you make up a story okay all of those things mean that this is happening this is who's doing it and this is where and this is the consequences once you've made up that story in your mind which may or may not be true um, you then have what you call confirmation bias so instead of challenging that you go off and look for as much evidence as you can to match what you think is going on and bear in mind all this happens unconsciously okay then you have a thing called availability bias. So um, an example of this would be what's what's kind of the most recent and popular stuff that's happening. So if you think about WannaCry, if, you know, if you've got something that's going on in a couple of weeks after that, when everything that's being talked about is WannaCry, your mind is going to take you off in that direction. Um, then you've got exposure and limited alternative biases. So that's the stuff you already know instantly go back to this is how we deal with this it looks kind of similar so I must have the answer um, that itself is called premature closure I've got a solution I'm going to stop thinking um, <clears throat> and then there's anchoring and adjustment which is whereby you perhaps latch onto one piece of information that's your anchor and then you adjust everything around that and actually that original anchor could be incorrect um, and then finally this is little thing called overconfidence we all think we're far better at stuff than we actually are so, yeah, that's kind of the sort of biases that it can go on. Yeah, I mean, this of course, this is one of the challenges to those of us who are used to, you know, we're used to tech, like we quite like technology because it seems quite simple when you start talking about the human brain. Um, <laughs> but but if we thought about if we thought about try, um, looking to uh, challenge or redress some of those 
biases for example in the face of a of an incident are there techniques that can be introduced in, into the incident response process that can help to ensure that we're addressing those kinds of biases for example yeah and that's where this cognitive agility thing comes into it um it's enhanced learning skills so the benefit of doing crisis response very regularly is is that it's about having lots and lots and lots of different scenarios but being able to then look for patterns within those so you then start to learn different patterns um, there's also sort of considering alternatives and all this is done in training just to get your mind flexing enough to be able to do it in the response time he said so this is what's on our plate now this is what we're going to do well wait a second what else could we do differently um, then you've got these sort of what we call metacognitive skills so that's the ability to plan monitor um, evaluate and reflect on your own learning your own knowledge because then actually I didn't do very well at that I need to go and learn more and it's a constant learning process that takes you from novice sort of through to advanced beginner competence proficiency expert it's a constant circle um, and I think there's a, there's a lovely term for it which is slow education and accelerated learning because it's kind of slow because you can't just go on a course and learn of all of this stuff um, it has to be done through the process of having experiences but it's accelerated because by learning in a cognitively agile way, you're learning a lot more at a lot deeper level. Well, at this, I mean, this feels like a perfect, and I'm going to bring Max in here because I'm hoping he's going to back me up and I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to ask Swati to commit to, you know, telling us about her colleagues or anything, but um, it's certainly been my experience having been in this industry for a little while that um, there are, given the nature of the, the, the people in, who work in the industry, which we kind of covered a little bit at the beginning, there are sometimes, I think, interpersonal challenges um, involved across organisations where perhaps you have individuals who are perhaps extremely strong technically, um, they have a very good understanding of the inner workings of the technology, but have a struggle to bridge the communications gap either across their own team, um, but more likely um, upwards up that sort of, um, I don't want to use the term chain of command, but kind of is a chain of command, as Swati described in an incident, you know, the, the bronze, silver, gold. So let's imagine those very uh, technical and tactical people in the in the bronze team um there are perhaps communication challenges that they may face moving up through that um up through that chain of command i'm just interested to think uh, do we have any ideas about how we could look to address some of those some of those challenges because it sounds to me like what beck is saying is that actually it's vital to be able to have those open channels of communication to be able to respond effectively but as an industry we face challenges around soft and communication skills so what can we do to help fix that yes yeah, it's, it's interesting i mean that's kind of my career has been a lot of the kind of bridging between uh, both in the police and, and gchq is is the the technical people because i was always working in a an e-crime unit kind of style in the police and and kind of translating police talk to techie talk and then techie talk back to police talk and either way uh was a, a large part of what i did there and the, and the same with um with gchq and i and, and i think inherently um there is still a lot of people in the in the you know um in the industry that um is only interested in tech and don't doesn't want to talk to anyone else. They're, they're doing the tech. Just just leave me alone. And we're actually, you know, and and I've I've found it in all the jobs I've been in with with technical people, um, highly technical people tend not to um, have those softer skills. And and I think that we we found that at the at the summer school as well. That initially there were um, 
a very high level of uh, people without those soft skills, I'd say, um, to put it lightly. And and actually, as the years passed, by the fourth year, GCHQ actually w- was recruiting much more from humanities subjects, we found, because going back to my initial point of finding um, people that had the resilience in them um, but were maybe highly technical and didn't have any communication skills they fa- they, they 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 had a load of them they, they already they already full of people like that but actually what they found was those people who could have those softer skills or already had those softer skills and were also you know highly intelligent and and could pick up the technical skills uh, pretty quick uh, they they lent on that that recruitment uh, quite heavily towards it and and I think that's across the industry that's what you need right is and we we have this uh, in immersive labs and i'm sure in most most companies have it where how do the really highly technical people understand what the people at the top want uh, and it varies but in a in a private company it might be about business value or it might be about an instant response it's about making sure you deal with an incident and communicate with your board appropriately when when it happens so yeah and i think it is I think from my, my perspective, getting that that um, diversity of thought, really, and diversity of, of kind of soft skills in, in teams as well. That's what I, I think I've seen. Swati, as a leader in, in information security in your in your um, role, are there are there ways that you're looking to address that 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 challenge? Or maybe you don't see it at all. Maybe it's maybe you, you address that through through recruitment. But how do you how do you deal with those challenges of communications across those different types of teams and given the very technical nature of some people's so, jobs. Uh, Chris, you've already touched upon uh, recruitment. This is a this is certainly a challenge, uh, as Max said, and uh, it's not a challenge which has a silver bullet answer. There is a slightly different angle that I will sort of throw in here is if you look at IT industry, we tend to have very similar CVs uh, wherein if you have are in testing, then you are become test leader, then you become test manager and so on. If you are project manager, then you become program manager, program director and so on. And when we go out to look for people, that's what we expect because we say we need 15 years of experience, 10 years of experience. But what uh, that view in my experience with my peers and colleagues is kind of changing now. It's not only about what you have done, but what you are capable of doing. As a, uh, to Rebecca's point, brain is really powerful, mind is really powerful, and we all can train ourselves to do things differently as long as we have the interest and willingness to do so. So, I mean, uh, uh, like Rebecca, I have uh, done master's in information security, literally sort of last year I graduated on that. And and the reason I did was because I thought if I'm going and working in information security, I needed to know a little bit more technically. And I really thought, my God, cryptography, I'll never understand it. And it's not like I can code or uh, algorithms or anything, but I get it, what it is. I think the thing, it feels like everything, you know, in everything we've discussed, the the, the, the theme running through seems to be that experience you know however that experience is cultivated however it's um gained however it's um continually exercised is just is just so important in that uh, recruitment example uh, um, a colleague of ours you know, will say all the time so the, the challenge we have is that many 
um, and this goes directly to something you were just saying, Swati, like many organizations take the view that, you know, experience should be measured in time, which is completely incorrect. Experience should be measured in experience. You, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing something, or even if you've been doing it at the right kind of other company, um, it's being able to demonstrate that you've gained the rights. It's one of the benefits of, of our industry is that it allows for that experience to be gained um, by anybody, actually, by anybody who's ready to point their 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 mind at those um, at those at those particular kinds of kinds of challenges. Yeah, we think about the points of the compass and north and south are strategic and tra- uh, tactical. Then you've got uh, west and east are cyber and physical. And I've got in my head those little Cluedo things that you get when you play a board game. It's about being able to move around into those situations, and it's not just one particular group that needs that. It's actually it's everybody because we've sort of spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, psychology and how people think and all that sort of thing but that doesn't happen in a vacuum you've really got a team effect on top of that so you get challenges such as groupthink biases. And thinking about how those people work together Swati a question for you would be what are the differences you know the the, the way that the, the world is t- today and that, that horrible phrase the new normal but you know what I mean we're all just dist- we are many of us are distributed that were together in 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 one place do you think that's changed things like um, how we might approach dealing with incidents or how interactions with one another work during that process or do you think that as an industry or as a you know as a, as a nature of employees we were already that way anyway so maybe it doesn't have an impact I think it does have an impact first of all uh, without going into incident impact on incident management I think generally it has been uh, a sudden change uh, within a day within a week everywhere that has you deal with change uh, in a sort of a before this before pandemic people have dealt with changes uh, in a limited manner not of this scale that what it does to a person uh, I mean, I, I, I can't, I'm not even qualified to be able to comment on that but all I can say is that within within my uh, peer group my teams uh, you see different things happening some people like it they don't don't have to commute I actually like it that I don't have to commute but that's only a part of it there are other parts of my job which have become harder uh, having hired new team members I had plans to stand in a meeting room draw things on a whiteboard and none of that happened some people uh, they really get the energy from people around them and that's not happening anymore so overall there has been a massive impact on uh, uh, trying to adjust to this new way of working it has aspects which people enjoy other aspects that people don't enjoy i'm always saying back though that uh, mainly i'm saying this to my wife a lot now humans are so adaptable that is my get out for every challenge we might have to face right humans are so adaptable but in the context of what swati's just described how adaptable are humans like how ready are we to adapt to this new way of working and overcoming those challenges that swati's just laid out yeah it's funny you should mention that i had this discussion with somebody this morning um and we were talking about a piece of theory called habit discontinuity hypothesis Oh, that trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Yes, didn't it? That's why I've got it written down in front of me so I can read it. Um, so really what it is, is that actually it's easier to change and shift to new ways of working after there's been a massively disruptive life event. 
So the pandemic is our massively disruptive life event because it's affected everybody. It's affected mm. every area of our lives. All of our habits have become disconnected from routines. And this is exactly what Swati was saying there. Actually, this is about reset. So it's about what do we do? How do our playbooks, our systems, processes, our ways of communication need to change to account for this new way of doing things? So with habit discontinuity now, the time is ripe for massive change. This is it. We're all sort of all over the place anyway. When you reset, it's not about building back. It's about building forward. So there's that element to it. And I've also reminded, whilst what he was talking, of some research I did oh, over 10 years ago into mobile phones. And I looked at the, you know, so when they came in and, and I, I see the same sort of thing with what's happening now is that there's a whole host of unwritten rules that we're all learning and developing. So I think back to the Zoom conversations I had in March where you know nobody put themselves on mute and somebody went for a pee and blah blah blah. You know, so we're all getting used to the idea that in a certain meeting everybody has to go on mute. Um is it now rude to turn your camera off? Uh, I did some my first bit of online teaching a couple of weeks ago and a complaint from one of my colleagues was already oh, all turn the cameras off or oh, tell them not to. So for me it's quite interesting to watch over the past few months what sort of habits have developed yet there isn't a written rule book to say this is how you behave but we're all getting used to it we are exactly as you said Chris we're changing we're adapting and we haven't kind of really noticed those biases that you spoke about in a, a crisis situation or a tabletop simulation exercise situation I would have thought that some of those biases or I am hopeful that some of those biases can be uh, uh, managed because we have checks and balances by having people from different perspective and different teams. So uh, I don't know, I have no way of measuring it, but I'm hoping that that plays out somehow when people challenge or ask questions or uh, say alternative uh, course, uh, course of action can be taken somewhere. So hopefully as people coming together can be countering those biases uh, to a certain extent. What do you think? For me, it's about bringing these biases from the unconscious into the conscious. How do you know you have these biases in the first place? Because I think a lot of this stuff happens naturally, educating people into what's going on with your brain and how it works. And then that sort of constant the metacognition, the reflection, what happened there? Why did I do that? Well, I don't know. I just I went off on one because so-and-so said something that annoyed me. And it's, it's digging into those incidents that gradually starts to bring your biases up into a conscious thing. And that's when it starts to be something that you can do on the fly in the moment. And there we must bring things to a close. It's just left to me to thank both of my guests as well as Max for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>